Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Good morning. My name is Judson. For those of you who don't know me, um, I'm the director of college ministry here at Church of the Redeemer. Um, and it's a gift and privilege to be with you, uh, to get to share the word with you this morning, this first Sunday of Advent. Um, glad that you're here. Whether it's your first time, millionth time, glad that you are here. Um, this Advent season, we're going to be going through the Psalms and preaching on the Psalms from the lectionary reading each week and uh, looking at this sort of prayer at the heart of each one that we're singing in this kind of new way. I don't know if that was weird or awesome for you, but I hope it was awesome. Um, but this phrase, restore us, O God, is at the heart of each of the Psalms over the next few weeks. And so we're going to be looking at that together. So if you have a Bible, um, go ahead and turn to Psalm 80 with me. If you don't have a Bible, there are some, well, there, you've got your bulletin that's got half of the psalm. I'm going to read the whole part. But there's also Bibles in the seat backs that you're welcome to take um, and keep with you if you'd like. Um, but while you're turning there, I'm going to go ahead and read the psalm as our prayer uh, to begin our sermon this morning. Hear the prayer of Psalm 80. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. You who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors, and enemies, our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine, that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us. O Lord God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. Amen. We don't preach on the Psalms all that often, um, so it's a little bit of a change of pace for us, but I am so glad that we're going to be spending Advent digging into the Psalms together because they are central, they are crucial actually to our life with God. You know, usually during Advent, we focus 
rightly so, on lots of the prophecies from Isaiah and others in the Old Testament that point forward to the coming of the Messiah, that prophesy about the coming of the Son of God. But actually, the writers of the New Testament, you look at the sermons of Peter and Acts, the letters of Paul, they actually quote Psalms more than any other book when they're talking about the coming of Jesus. You know, and the Psalms really, you know, we, in the Anglican Church, you know, we've got the Book of Common Prayer. It's a prayer book that is given to us to help us pray, to teach us how to pray. And the prayer book, the Book of Common Prayer, takes essentially Scripture, reorganizing it and putting it into the form of prayers for us to pray together as a church. But there's actually a prayer book right in the Bible itself, the Book of Psalms. The Psalms were the prayer book in the hymnal of Israel. They were the prayer book and the hymnal of Jesus, and they're our prayer book too. And for 2,000 years, Christians have believed that the Psalms are the school that we go to in order to learn how to pray. But if you've ever tried reading or praying the Psalms, you start reading through the Psalms, it doesn't take long to realize that the Psalms sound pretty different from most of our standard prayers that we might pray today. In fact, I would actually say that a lot of our praying today is very boring and sanitized in comparison with some of the stuff that you come across in the Psalms. And Psalm 80 is no different, right? Psalm 80 that we're looking at today was a prayer and a song that was born out of tragedy. 700 years before Jesus ever came and walked the earth, the Assyrian Empire invaded, conquered, and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. And they carried away most of the population into captivity in a violent form. It was a tragedy. It was horrific. And scholars think that this psalm was most likely written by refugees that were fleeing the violence of northern Israel who fled into southern Judah. Some of you here today know literally what this experience is like. Some of you have had to flee your homes you know the experience of being a refugee. You can relate with this psalm directly. But all of us here this morning, regardless of what our story is, we can enter into this together. Because at its core, this psalm comes from a place that all of us know all too well. It comes from the gap between theology, what we believe, and experience. The gap between theology and experience, it's a painful place. It comes from the place where there's a confusion between God's past faithfulness and his seeming present absence. That's where this psalm comes from. And all of us have been in that place. Because this is what's called a psalm of lament. A psalm of lament. And to be honest, lament is not something that we do all that well or all that often in the American church. You know, we love to sing songs about God's faithfulness and goodness and his resurrection from the dead and conquering of sin and death. And we love to sing and pray about how we love God and how God loves us. And rightly so. But when was the last time or how often do we tell God together or sing to God together in church? You fed us with the bread of tears, God. I can't remember the last time. Those are not words that we often say. But this is what lament does. 
It gives voice to the reality of the brokenness that we sometimes experience in life. It gives voice to the place where God seems absent and where life feels like it is going off the rails. But Psalms of Lament give voice to this pain together, and they give voice to God. And that makes all the difference. See, the psalm writers, even though they're talking about their pain, they're not cynical. They're not running away from God. They're not just complaining to one another. The psalms of lament don't run away from God. They're prayers, right? They speak to God directly. They take the fight to God, even in their disillusionment and in their confusion. And they're not just prayers for individuals to say in private. Like I said, this was a collective prayer book, a hymnal. These were prayers meant to be said together and sung together repeatedly in community like we are here today. And so let's dig into this psalm of lament together, Psalm 80, looking at it in more detail. You know, I said this comes from the gap between theology and experience. And it starts with a theology. It starts with what the psalmist believes to be true about who God is. Look with me at verse 1. Give ear. O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. That's how the psalm begins. It begins by declaring that God is the shepherd of God's people. He's the one who leads and feeds and protects them. Just like we know more familiarly in the famous Psalm 23. And God is enthroned upon the cherubim. That is, God is the true king who rules over the world, but who is also present and worshiped and accessible in his holy temple in Jerusalem. And if we skip down to verse 8, there's more. There's another image to describe the goodness and the power and the faithfulness of God that the psalmist has known in the past. It's the image of a vine dresser or of a vineyard owner with the people of Israel described as a vine. Listen to this in verse 8. God, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. These verses, this image is talking about God's incredible act of deliverance when God rescued and delivered Israel out of slavery in Egypt and brought them to the promised land and gave them a home. And this is a vivid image. It's tender. You can almost picture God the gardener clearing away the rocks, carving out a place in the soil for this vine to grow and protecting it and caring for it until the image becomes hyperbolic. There's a vine that's taller than mountains. That is what God did for Israel. God is this powerful but tender vine dresser. That's who the psalmist believes God to be. Shepherd, king, loving vine dresser of Israel. And yet, their present experience doesn't reflect that at all. Just as they use vivid imagery to describe God's goodness, so do they also use images to describe what feels like God's absence or even anger towards them. Listen to verse 2. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. The Hebrew word for stir up 
is really one that gets used to describe waking someone up who's asleep, shaking them awake. The psalmist is saying, God, wake up. You're asleep on the job. Where are you? And it goes on in verse 4. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? Not just angry with their sins, but angry with their prayers. And again, the Hebrew is even more vivid. It's not just angry. It says that God is fuming at their prayers. It's an image of smoke and cloud. So God is sleeping. God is fuming. It's like God is a sleeping volcano. So much power and potential. They're doing nothing but smoke. And that's not all. The psalmist goes on even more than that. As we saw, he begins by calling God the good shepherd. In fact, this is the only psalm besides Psalm 23 that calls God shepherd. But look what the writer does with this image. He takes the image of shepherd and distorts it. It's almost like a Picasso painting. You're the shepherd of Israel, the psalmist says. But instead of leading your people to green pastures and making their cup overflow with wine, verse 5, you have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink by the court. Instead of setting a table in the presence of their enemies, protecting them with rod and staff, you make us, in verse 6, an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. You're a vine dresser, God, who lovingly transplanted and grew your vine into a towering cedar of vines, the psalmist says. So why then, verse 12, have you broken down its walls so that everyone who passes by crushes the vines, picks its fruit, you let boars come in and ravage it, everything that moves in the field feeds on it. He's talking about this invasion, the destruction of Israel by the invasion of Assyria. Right? This is a vivid image that this refugee, refugee is using as he flees the terror. And the one who wrote this, despite this, was raised on the stories of the Exodus. They were raised knowing that God is faithful and good, is the vine dresser of Israel. And so as they flee the terror and they flee the violence, they simply cannot make sense of what is going on. They cannot understand how the God that they know would let this happen. And they tell God that in no uncertain terms in this psalm. When's the last time you were that honest with God? When is the last time you were that honest with God? It's not easy always to be that honest. It might feel awkward at first or, or maybe even wrong. But the Psalms of Lament teach us that honesty is an essential part of our life with God. It is not optional. And God not only permits, but wants us to bring the fullness of ourself, of our heart and in our soul to him, even when we're not in a place that we want to be. He doesn't want our platitudes or flowery language. He doesn't want our cliches on our coffee mugs. He doesn't want any of those things. He wants us to come to him in joy and sorrow, sickness and health, wealth and poverty, life and death. He can handle our anger 
God can handle our confusion. God can even handle our doubt. But he wants us to bring all of these things to him instead of running away. Take the fight to God. That's what the Psalms of Lament do. And so this psalm gives powerful voice to this sense of confusion towards God. But what does the writer go do with that? Where does it go from there? Well, they don't move from there to trying to make perfect sense of everything. They don't explain what's happened. There is no perfect theological formula or logical reasoning to make sense of it all. Again, there are no cliches. There are no cheap answers to be found in Psalm 80. Instead, there is just a cry out of sheer need that gets repeated because it is so urgent, escalating three times. Verse three, restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And again, verse seven, restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And again in verse 19, Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. What does this mean? What is this prayer asking for from God? The Hebrew word for restore here that gets used again and again is shuv. Say this with me. Shuv. You're going to hear more about shuv probably in the weeks ahead as we look at this cry for restoration in other psalms. But on the most basic level, shuv means to restore, to turn or bring back, to turn or bring back. It's the prayer of a refugee asking to be brought back home. Bring us back home. Bring things back to the way they were. Turn back the enemy. Restore things back to the way that they used to be. In other words, fix things. Change our circumstances. Make things right again. Turn things around, God. But shuv can also mean turn us around. Turn us around. In fact, the King James used to translate it, turn us again, O God, instead of restore us, O God. In other words, change not just our circumstances, but change us. Change us. Change our hearts and our wills. So that as verse 18 says, we shall not turn back from you. We shall not turn back from you. See, the psalm acknowledges that it's not just the situation that needs to be made right. It's the people themselves. It's us. We need to be made right. Now, the prophet Isaiah and other contemporary prophets in this time period, they made extremely clear in all of their preaching that what happened to the kingdom of Israel happened because of their unfaithfulness, their idolatry, their injustice. They turned away from their shepherd and their vine dresser, and they gave themselves over to the wolves and to the boars instead. And friends, this is what sin does, does it not? It makes us both victim and victimizer. It is true of every single one of us in this room that we have suffered at the hands of others and that we have suffered at the hands of situations that are entirely out of our control. And it is also true of every one of us that others have suffered because of us. We wound 
and we've been wounded. And all of us in one way or another have turned away from our good shepherd to other shepherds. We've looked elsewhere for satisfaction and salvation. We need to be turned ourselves. But look again, where does the psalmist go with all of this, with all of this need for turning and restoration? Well, what about you? Where do you go when things are falling apart and life feels like it is falling off the rails? How do you respond when you feel completely adrift? I know for me, my default response is to obsessively analyze and research until I feel like I've fully diagnosed exactly what the problem is, and then I obsessively try to come up with a plan and solution to fix it. It works sometimes, not all the time, but it's a process that usually just happens in my own head, all by myself, where I'm trying to shepherd myself and save myself and seize control through knowledge and planning. I'm sure I'm the only one here that does this. But I know last year, when our daughter Junia was diagnosed with spina bifida at 19 weeks, this was my first response. I started obsessively reading medical journals, researching everything I could to find all the data that had ever been published about this thing called fetal surgery that I'd never even heard about before. Trying to make a decision about whether we should pursue this and take this risk and make these sacrifices to, to do this thing. My reflex was to view it purely as a medical problem with medical solutions. And again, I would wager I'm not the only one here with this tendency. Our families, our society, our world has plenty of problems, does it not? And it's easy to view them all as problems that can simply be solved if we have the right politicians, or the right amount of money, or the right income, or the right consumer items, or the right technology, or the right ideas. But the refugee poet of Psalm 80 does not do this. They resist the urge to reduce their problem down to simply a political or a military one. Instead, they are convinced that everything about both their problem and their solution is found in God. Better military alliances are not the answer. More sacrifices in the temple, not the answer. Instead of looking around more and more frantically for a solution, they look up to the God of hosts, the God of angel armies to come and to deliver them. You know, going back to our situation with Junia, in the end, it was not my research at all that helped us make a decision about what to do. It was several people that God sent into our life very clearly who helped to shepherd us, to guide us, and to help us understand what we needed to do and where we needed to go. They helped us find the perfect surgeon for exactly what we needed. It was a huge gift. But even then, even when the surgery was happening, just having the right surgeon was not enough. God guided our surgeon in response to the prayers of our brothers and sisters in ways that were truly miraculous. After the surgery, the surgeon came to me, and this man was not a Christian, not a believer in God, and he told me that he felt led partway through the procedure to change the direction that he was going, to change their approach entirely, 
because he felt led by a presence that he said was in the room that was more than just medical knowledge. It was, it was a remarkable moment. God uses governments. God uses surgeons. Praise God for surgeons. God uses our wise plans. I'm not saying to forsake these things, but we do not look to them first for deliverance. And that applies, and this is where it gets harder for me at least, not just to our problems around us, but our problems within us as well. Even in response to our own sinfulness, the psalmist does not turn inward and look for a solution through moral strategies or just increased effort. Right? I think one of our dangers sometimes in the church is that we can reduce the Christian faith down to a set of techniques that we can use and procedures that we go through to manage our sin. We think, well, you know, if I just start spending some more time in the word, right? If I just spend some more time in prayer or if I make sure that I feel guilty enough when I say the prayer of confession or if I go to the right conference or if I read the right book or get the right playlist on Spotify to pump me up, Make sure I'm at church on Sundays, especially in Advent. Then I'll get back on track. But to the poet of Psalm 80, the solution to our unfaithfulness towards God is not found in trying to muster up more faithfulness within ourselves. It's found by appealing to God's faithfulness. It is God's faithfulness that makes ours even possible. And if we wait until we feel faithful enough or clean enough or holy enough or fixed up enough to come to God. And then as the song says, we will never come at all. Now, when it feels though like God has abandoned us, like God has been feeding us with tears and fuming at our prayers, that's not easy. It is not easy. But to the writer of this psalm, even in the midst of the worst tragedy imaginable, it is clear to them that no matter what happens, the first and the primary one that we have to deal with is God. You know, I think of when the crowd started to turn away from Jesus, when his teachings got difficult. And Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, are you going to go too? And his servant Peter looked at him and he said, where else would we go? You're the one who has the words of eternal life. This might be hard sledding right now, but there's nowhere else that I'm going to be but with you. There's nowhere else I want to be but with you. So even in the midst of confusion and chaos, this psalm has its attention laser fixed in one place from start to finish, on the face of God. And that's why... The prayer is not just for God to restore us, but for God to let his face shine. Let your face shine that we may be saved, he says. Let the light of your smile break through the clouds that are hiding you from us. Smile upon us. Break through the clouds. Verse 14 actually tells God to shuv, which at first glance sounds maybe not great to tell God to shuv. It sounds not like a good thing, but what he's asking is, God, turn. You turn, God. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see us. Turn your face toward us. Because beneath all of the visible, obvious things going on, beneath all the visible chaos, 
The reality that's at the heart of what's going on for this poem is a relationship between God and God's people that has become estranged. And the psalmist longs for God and people to be face to face again, for God's face to shine in blessing toward them. To them, salvation, that is rescue from everything that diminishes our life and then separates us from God. Salvation is inseparable from the shining of God's face. Where else would they turn? And where else can we turn? God is our shepherd and our king and our vine dresser. And salvation is found nowhere else. But then the psalm ends in a fairly unexpected direction. This prayer for God to turn again, to shine his face, to have regard for his vine, it starts bleeding in verse 15 into another prayer for God to work through a new character thrown into the psalm. The man of your right hand, the son whom you have made strong for yourself. And in the Old Testament, this son of man, the man of your right hand, this is king language. And on one level, this is a prayer asking, God, rescue us through the wise and powerful leadership of our king. Use our earthly king in Jerusalem to save us and deliver us from our enemies. But Israel kept praying this prayer, and we have kept praying this prayer long after the original situation passed. Why? Because they recognized that they and we need more than just a normal king. We need for God to send his own son, the Messiah. We need the deliverance that comes from God himself. The Hebrew word for being saved used in this psalm is the word Yeshua. 700 years after these refugees prayed this longingly to God, a man named Yeshua, who many called the son of man, went on a climb up a mountain with three of his disciples. And at the top of the mountain, a guy named Matthew tells us that he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun. A few years later, another one of this man's disciples excitedly and joyfully wrote to a new church, friends, God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Friends, God has answered the prayer of Psalm 80's refugee poet by sending his son, Jesus Christ. And as we look to Christ, we see God's face. We see the brightness of God's smile toward us. Jesus is our true king who rules the world with righteousness and with peace. Jesus is the true vine, the only one who truly was fully faithful to God and in whom alone we too can bear the fruit of righteousness. And Jesus is our good shepherd who lays down his very life for us to feed us not just with bread and with wine, but with the bread of his own body in the cup of his own blood, who died to give us life that we might rejoice and praise and call on his name forever. And yet, we still experience that same gap, 
do we not? Between what we know and believe to be true, between our theology and our experience. We still experience dissonance sometimes between the things we know to be true in Christ and what our actual life looks like. Sometimes God still feels hidden from us. It may feel like God is angry even at our prayers. Or maybe I'm alone in this. We still wrestle with these things today. And so what do we do with that? Well, this is where we look to Advent. Because this is really what the season of Advent is all about. It's a season about training to learn how to live in the gap. How to live in this space between prayer and fulfillment. The space between the way things ought to be and the way things are. It's a season that teaches us how to wait on God, who doesn't work on our timing, but to wait in hope. And it does it by directing our attention to two anchors that hold us together in this time between Christ's first and second coming. And the first anchor is his, anchor is his first coming, the first advent. Advent directs our attention to the first time that Jesus came, when he was born in a manger in Bethlehem. And he grew up and became a man who died and rose again on our behalf. God has shown us in his incarnation, without, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that he is for us. He's willing to give his very life for us. And so when it feels like God doesn't hear us and God doesn't care, look at Jesus. Look at this man who shows us Christ's face, who shows us the Father's face. Be reminded of God's goodness. Read the Gospels. And have your faith in God restored. But the second anchor that, anchor that we look to in Advent is Christ's second Advent, his second coming. When he will come to destroy sin and death once and for all. When he will usher in a kingdom and a city with walls that will never be broken down. Revelation 21 says that this city that he will bring us has no need of sun or moon to shine on it at all. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So when you are struggling to wait on the Lord, and you're tempted to turn away and start looking frantically around you and within you for other solutions, spend some time reading Revelation 21 and 22. Remind yourself of the hope and the promise that God has given us, that he will deliver and make happen. Be reminded of the beauty of God's face in these prayers. And so my charge to you this Advent is this. Take the risk of being fully honest with God. Take the risk of being fully honest with God. Tell God the truth, both about what God has done in your life, right? This is not about reducing things down into negativity. Tell God the truth about his goodness but also tell God the truth about the ways that he may feel absent to you, the ways it may feel like he has abandoned you. Bring all of that to God. Take the fight to him. Follow the model of the Psalms of Lament. If that feels like throwing with your left hand or that feels like I don't know how to use words to do that, use the Psalms. They're our guide and gift to us. The form for using the Psalms that were shown in the Book of Common Prayers start with Psalm 1, and then you read Psalm 2, and then you read Psalm 3. You don't need a fancy reading plan. 
Just start at the beginning and pray them through. Let the Psalms give you the words to say. But this Advent, as you practice honesty with God, as you turn your attention to him, anchor yourself, wait on the Lord, stay between the two Advents that hold us together in this life. And remember that Christ has died, that Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.